who are visiting with us today, we're in about the middle of a 15-part series entitled God's Gifts in Genesis. Last Lord's Day, we uh, made it to Abraham with chapter 12, and today we're also looking at Abraham in chapter 15. I hope you'll find that bulletin insert or open in your ESV Bibles and we'll read the Word of God together, Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6. After these things, the Word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. And number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. If I begin today's sermon by saying it's not what you know, but you could finish that sentence for me, couldn't you? Of course you could. It's not what you know, but who you know. That old adage is so entrenched that we don't question it at all. In fact, all of us probably know someone who has a job right now because they knew a specific person or group of people who helped them to find that particular job. As job recruiters will tell you, it's all about networking. But what you and I need to understand is that networking is more than just about employment. In a Harvard Business Review article, the authors contend that networks determine which ideas become breakthroughs, which new drugs are prescribed, which farmers cultivate pest-resistant crops, and which R&D engineers make the most high-impact discoveries. They cite the work of sociologist Randall Collins, who showed that breakthroughs from well-known people, well-known people such as Freud, Picasso, Watson and Crick with their discovery of DNA, and even Pythagoras, were the consequence of a particular type of personal network that prompted exceptional individual creativity. So as you can see, the truth behind the phrase, it's not what you know, but who you know, is so much larger than simply finding a job. In fact, that principle that we normally associate with employment has been used by God for centuries to bring about tremendous changes in this world of which we're a part. That principle has been used to cause, for example, entire continents to be discovered, 
think here about a particular monk that Christopher Columbus happened to know. This monk who put Columbus in touch with Queen Isabella, which over time led to a fleet of three ships and what some people would refer to as the discovery of America. We could also say in a manner of speaking that God has used this same principle to cause republics to be formed and entire nations to undergo religious reform. Think here of Knox and how he knew Calvin and how through that influence came back and with God's power and help and others, the Scottish Reformation took place. I mentioned this small but powerful principle because we can also see the truth of those words in our text today, especially as we talk about this gift of faith and its importance in our lives. Because when it comes to faith, nothing could be more true than it's not what you know, but who you know. And we can see that in Abraham's life. For we're told here that the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward will be very great. God is reiterating His fundamental promise He's already made to Abraham just in slightly different words, but He's not only reiterating that promise, He's also giving Abraham encouragement and support because we have to remember that in chapter 14 of Genesis, right before our text, Abraham has just been on this military excursion where he won a night battle against four kings and their combined armies. He was most likely outnumbered. And I would think, knowing our how we live day in and day out, that Abram was probably wondering about some kind of retaliation from these four kings and their armies. And God comes into that and not only reiterates His promise, but tells him, I am your shield. I'm your divine protection. In other words, don't worry. Now, in this sense here, the word reward is is not a prize that is earned like we think of it many times, but a, a special recognition given to a faithful servant who's been out there living and risking his life, we might say. Remember, Abraham took a risk when he and Sarah left their land and their family and all that they knew to follow the call of God, what we talked about last week. And this reward continues to call Abraham and Sarah to live as people of hope in a situation that consistently seems hopeless, a fact of which Abraham reminds God in our text here in verse 2. Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless in the air of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. You have given me no offspring. We saw in last week's text in Genesis 12, God's promise to make of Abraham a great nation. Time has passed. And that promise has not yet been fulfilled. And Abraham gives us a good example here, I think, of, of what to do 
when we're not feeling like God is, is listening to us, when we're not feeling that God has fulfilled what He's promised to fulfill. We go to Him and we tell Him about it. Just like we see people do in Scripture over and over again. We see Nehemiah go to God with his request. We see Moses. We see David. We see Hezekiah. We see Bible character after character go to God and make their requests known. Sometimes not in the nicest ways. For example, think of David's words in Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear pain in my soul and and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. We think David wrote Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The same words that Jesus quotes from the cross Jesus gives us that example Himself. We've got to make our requests and desires known to God. Abraham is doing much the same. You know, it's like he's saying, God, you've made this promise, but but it's not yet fulfilled. What are you going to give me? Why give me land if I have no heir? How can I be a blessing to others with no son? You see, the gift of land always requires those to inherit it. Land is never just for one generation. And Abraham knows that. I don't know if you read the article in Charlotte Observer about three or four months ago about uh, the bush and vine farm over here in York run by the Hall family. You know, and Bob Hall owns that property, and he said, I wanted to give it to to whatever child or children of mine that would stay there and work the land. And his son, Sam, has taken him at his word, and he's there helping their farm to move forward and stay successful. But the land is only useful with an heir to come along and live on it. It's the same way with Abraham here. And then this passage seems to take a a kind of interesting twist to me because, you know, Abraham has been honest with God. He's been real. He's laid it out there that God's not doing what he's promised and we expect God to maybe do something. And what does God do? He simply reiterates the promise once again. Your own son shall be your heir. And then he takes Abraham outside under the starlit sky and says, Look toward the heavens and number the stars if you're able to number them. So shall your offspring be. It's almost as if God is saying, Abraham, are are you able and willing to wait a little longer? Can you do that? Can you trust in me however long it takes for me to fulfill this promise? This has to be the way we look at it because God is still speaking in the future tense. So shall your offspring be. Abraham is given nothing more than God's word, nothing more than his promise. 
And with that same promise, he's faced with a decision. Is this God faithful or not? Can I really believe what this God is saying? Will he really keep his word? Even without any evidence whatsoever. Even if it takes five more years or ten more years or twenty more years. All I have is his word. And we see Abraham's acceptance of God's promise there in verse 6. And he believed the, the Lord. And God reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now let's ask a very pertinent question along about here. Does Abraham conjure up this belief on his own that we read right here in Genesis? Where Abraham believed God and and God counted it as righteousness. Does Abraham conjure this up or or does God help him with this gift of faith? Remember, it's not what we know, but who we know. What is it that Abraham really knows in his mind, intellectually speaking? He knows that his wife is barren. He knows that he's an old man. He knows that if they were not able to conceive a child when they were young, they don't have a prayer of conceiving a child now. So it's not what he knows, it has to be who he knows if these promises are to come to pass. In fact, one moment in this text, it almost sounds like Abraham is arguing with God. You've given me no offspring. What do you expect out of me? That's that's the take I have with the passage. He sounds almost like he's ready to lose what faith he has. And then the next moment, We read, Abraham believed God. And he counted it as righteousness. As Walter Brueggemann puts it in his commentary, Abraham did not move from protest to confession by knowledge or by persuasion, but by the power of God who reveals and causes his revelation to be accepted. Do you believe that? In other words, the same God who gives the promise is the one who makes it believable. It is, in essence, a revelation of God. Now, if you're not sure you believe that or not, let's think about a story we find in Matthew 16 in the New Testament where we read that Peter and the rest of the disciples are men of little faith. And Jesus is the one who calls them that because all of a sudden they find themselves going across the Sea of Galilee and they've forgotten to take any food. And they start saying, oh no, we haven't brought any food. And Jesus says, don't you remember? 
Don't you remember the feeding of the 5,000? Don't you remember the feeding of the 4,000? In other words, Jesus is saying, don't you recognize the one with whom you're traveling who can take a couple of pieces of bread and a couple of fish and feed 5,000 people with it and have 12 baskets left over? And you're worried about where your next meal's going to come from, you men of little faith. And then less than 10 verses later, in that same chapter, Jesus is asking His disciples, who do the people around here say that I am? And then He personalizes it, but who do you say that I am? And Peter blurts out, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And by including Jesus' response to Peter that I'm going to tell you about in a minute. Matthew is helping us ask our same pertinent question. How does this man of little faith, Peter, who's who's worried about where his next meal is going to come from, how is he all of a sudden able to make such a profound profession of faith? Did Peter somehow conjure it up on his own? Or was it a gift from God? Well, if you read Matthew 16, you'll see Jesus' words and you'll see how excited he gets. And he says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but this comes from your Father who is in heaven. This is so similar to our story of Abraham's faith. He didn't move from his protest to God. He didn't move from protest to confession by knowledge or persuasion. He moved there because God revealed it to him, because God taught him, because God helped him to understand and accept. This is why Tom Long can say in an article of his own faith that faith is not what we believe so much as it is a gift from God. It is something we would have never done something we would have never achieved or thought up on our own. It comes as a surprise, as a disruption of the normal ways of living. Think about how John Newton has it in his classic hymn, Amazing Grace. Newton has excellent theology. You remember how that line starts, "'Twas grace." That did what? Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. It's the gift of God. Meaning that faith is not some kind of human discovery. It's not some kind of work of righteousness that we do. It's a divine revelation, something taught by God Himself. And not only that, but faith is not some belief in something being true so much as it is a belief in someone who is the truth. A belief in the Lord Jesus Christ who is the way and the truth and the life. Faith is believing that Jesus is the Son of the living God who came to this earth and lived a perfect life and was sacrificed on the cross for your sins and for my sins so that we might be brought back into a proper relationship with God because our relationship was fractured by the sin 
in our lives. The Apostle Paul understands this text well and its implications. He uses it in Romans 4 to argue that it's not what we know, it's not even what we do, but it's who we know, just like it was for Abraham. Think back to the Gospels and the various times that Jesus always marvels at someone's faith. Does he marvel because of what they know intellectually or because of how they place their trust in him completely? We see one of those stories in Matthew 8. The centurion in Capernaum who pulls Jesus aside and says, I want you to heal my servant. He's at the point of death. Jesus says, well, I'll go with you. And the centurion says, no, I'm I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. And then he proceeds to tell Jesus that he's convinced that diseases are just as obedient to Jesus as his soldiers are to him. He displays this great trust in Jesus and recognizes his power, power to heal at a great distance without Jesus even being present with the servant. And Jesus says to the people around him, truly I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. You see, in Matthew's gospel particularly, Matthew goes back and forth between these people who have great faith and these disciples who have little faith over and over again. Disciples who should know better, and yet their faith is small and insignificant. They act like they've never even experienced anything. We see this great faith with the centurion in Capernaum. We see this great faith with the woman who had had a hemorrhage for years, who came to Jesus and pulled on His garment, knowing that if she could just touch the hem of His garment, she would be healed. We see it in the the life of this Gentile woman whose daughter is demon-possessed and she begs Jesus for help and Jesus says, No, I've come to the people of Israel and she continues to beg and push and beg and push until Jesus heals her daughter. And He labels all of those people, people of great faith. You see, faith is a problem to those of us who are disciples when we're so concerned over whatever problems or challenges we have in our life right now that we forget the God who is still sovereign in all of life. Did you hear that? Faith is a problem when we're so concerned about the challenges in our lives right now that we fail to follow or remember, or speak to the God who is still sovereign in every single situation in our lives. What Matthew knows and what Genesis shows us through Abraham's example is that faith is an issue precisely for those who have heard God's call and intend to answer that call. Because God will test us. You know, if you intend to answer God's call and you've told him that, he's going to test you. Why do you think he's making Abraham wait another however many years it is before he gets an heir? 
Those are some of the ways we grow the most in our faith. And we all have that calling as we talked about last week. Why else would Paul say in the book of Ephesians, lead lives worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Now how do we do it? How do we live that kind of faith? We believe in the God of the promise, just like Abraham. We believe in this God who has given us a call. We reach out to Him. We tell Him, like the man in the New Testament, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We trust in Him completely, and because of that trust, we can obey His will for our lives, regardless of where it takes us or what happens in our lives. We see that kind of faith in the lives of those three Hebrew young men, just very young men, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that we can read about in the book of Daniel. You know, they're in trouble because King Nebuchadnezzar has erected a golden image, huge. And he expects everybody, when they hear the music, to bow down and worship. And they refuse to worship. And they're in trouble with the king because the king hears about their refusal to bow down and worship. And he says to them, if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace, and what God will deliver you from my hands? And they answer with a classic statement of faith. They say, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and He will deliver us out of your hand, O King, but if not... You see, that's the faith part. Anybody can count on God to save them, to heal them, to bring them through whatever tough situation it is. But if not, they understand that God may choose not to deliver them in that given particular time. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or will not worship the golden image you have set up. You see, we can talk like that, you and me, and we can live like that. When like the Apostle Paul did with Timothy, we too can proclaim, but I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Live like it's not what you know, but who you know. Live that way to God's honor and glory. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together.